Thank you, Jim, and <clears throat> good morning, everyone. I didn't know I had done so much tremendously, <laughs> but I appreciate Jim's thoughts in saying a few things about me, because you didn't want a total stranger up here. But one of the secrets he revealed, which you have figured out by now with your calculator, I am the oldest in the room, and so <laughs> I do command a bit of respect. <laughs> to continue in the mood of what this week represents for veterans, with Memorial Day approaching, I asked Jim if I may read just a paragraph excerpt out of an email which is circulating among certain veteran communities. Written, the piece was penned by General David Petraeus. In World War II, 11.2% of our nation's population served in four years. 11.2%. During the Vietnam War, 4.3% served in 12 years of war. Since 2001, only 0.45, that's 45 hundredths of a percent, of our population have served in the global war on terror. Now, thanks to our three freshmen congressmen, veterans all, the count is somewhere up around 80 members in the House and Senate who have served their nation under arms. That's about 15%. These are unbelievable statistics. Over time, fewer and fewer people have shouldered more and more of the burden, and it is only getting worse. Our troops were sent to war in Iraq by a Congress consisting of 10% veterans, with only one person having a child in the military. Your taxes were not increased to pay for the war. War bonds were not sold. Gas was not regulated. In fact, the average citizen was asked to sacrifice nothing and has sacrificed nothing, unless they've chosen to out of the goodness of their hearts. <clears throat> the only people who have sacrificed are the veterans and their families, the volunteers, the people who swore an oath to defend this nation. You stand there, deployment after deployment, and fight on. You've lost relationships, spent years of your lives in extreme conditions, Years apart from kids you'll never get back. And beaten your body in a way that even professional athletes don't understand. Then you come home to a nation that doesn't understand. They don't understand suffering. They don't understand sacrifice. They don't understand why we fight for them. Congressman Jack Bergman represents Michigan's 1st District. He's a retired three-star general of the Marine Corps, the highest-ranking military officer ever to serve in the Congress.
remember this is the 115th Congress after the record. Commissioned a second lieutenant in the Marines in 1969. He became a Marine aviator, flying both rotary wing and fixed wing aircraft in the United States and overseas, including the Republic of Vietnam in 1969. Like all good Marine aviators, he commanded ground-based units as well as flying units. For his final duty, he commanded Marine Forces Reserve and Marine Forces North for four years until October 2009. He retired with the rank of Lieutenant General in December 2009 after a remarkable 40 years of service to this nation. He chose to return to his family's ancestral home in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and last November won a decisive election victory with a compelling message if you want to change Washington, send a Marine. <laughs> they did it. And Watersweet, Michigan is just down the road, U.S. 2, from Wakefield, where my ancestors originated. My dad and uh, grandpa moved out from Wakefield after, uh, during the iron ore strike and did some lumbering. Dad decided to remain, remain behind met mom and married, and uh, the story is now we are Montanans. Another M state. <laughs> Congressman Don Bacon represents Nebraska's second district. That comprises, in case you didn't know, Omaha and also the world-famous boutique community of Papillion. <laughs> he joined the Air Force in 1985 and retired some 30 years later as a Brigadier General. Congratulations to you. His specialties included electronic warfare, intelligence, reconnaissance, and public affairs. Three of his global deployments were in the Middle East, including an assignment to Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's part of that 0.45%. If that wasn't a full plate, he has earned two master's degrees and taught leadership classes as a college professor. The ways of Washington are probably not foreign to him, as he was a military advisor to Congressman Jeff Fortenberry of Nebraska's 1st District, and the two now call themselves colleagues. Welcome, Congressman Mast. Thanks, sir. Congressman Brian Mast, who represents Florida's 18th District, emulated his father and joined the U.S. Army. When he was deployed to Afghanistan, he served with the Elite Joint Special Operations Command as a bomb disposal expert. It's hard to imagine a more challenging and nerve-testing assignment. While clearing a path for U.S. Army Rangers during one of his many missions, Brian was severely injured in an IED explosion. IED explosion. The explosion took both his legs, and he suffered injury to an arm and hand. While recovering here at Walter Reed Medical Center, Brian drew inspiration from his father and resolved to continue to provide service to this nation in any way he could. That put him on a path to, that has now brought him to the U.S. Congress, whereas the recipient of the Bronze Star Medal and the Purple Heart Medal. He proudly serves the constituents in his district 
and the citizens of our great nation. We will now hear from these three patriots who care deeply about our veterans, our national defense, and our freedom as Americans. Please welcome Congressman Jack Bergman, Congressman Don Bacon, and Congressman Brian Mast. ceremony in Wakefield on Monday morning. I'm doing, I'm doing two of them, one in Watersmead at the Tribal Burial Ground and the other one at the, the Wakefield Cemetery. So we do, our roots are about 30 minutes apart. Uh, folks, uh, I was told the topic today was be brief. <laughs> and, and it's important that, number one, what did I learn in the military? I'm going to give it all to you right here, right now. It's not about you. The sooner you learn life is not about you, the sooner you're going to get to where you're supposed to be in life, because it's about the people around you. And I'm honored to sit between two distinguished, not only gentlemen, but veterans and combat-proven heroes. And they don't fight for themselves. Brian's going to fight for me because I'm on his right. Don's going to fight for me because I'm on his left, and vice versa. We, we, you fight for each other, knowing that you take care of each other while you all together accomplish the mission. Pure and simple. It's not about you, it's about the mission. Number two, why is service important? We just did a, a, a wreath laying ceremony over at Statuary Hall, and it was all the, the congressmen who were uh, the veterans, and it was a very solemn ceremony, no speeches. And it was, it was just a prayer and replaying and taps. There's nothing that gives me a better feeling inside than the feeling of service, whether it's service to your country, service to your family, service to your God. Anyone who has had the opportunity to serve in any form, you know what I'm talking about. It's about giving back. Number three defense of this country. We have a president, finally, who takes it seriously and seeks to understand what it's about before trying to be understood. And I would suggest to you anybody who talks about the plus-up in defense doesn't understand that it's really a catch-up in defense after eight years of unceremonious, unplanned, un-whatever-you-want-to-call-it gutting of the military. You, your planes can't fly, your tanks can't roll, your ships can't sail. You don't have a defense. We need to make sure that we value every dollar. And by the way, in case anybody doesn't know this, the most frugal service of all are the Marines. We're, we're just flat cheap. 
<laughs> but we're glad we have the army because what we don't have, we go and kind of borrow from them. <laughs> but the idea is that defense we have uh, needs to be equipped, trained, and ready. And the people, that small percentage of people who serve today are really spectacular, and they need to be ready, but that requires leaders, and we have them. So I'm honored to be here with you, and uh, thank you, and I look forward to your questions. So who's next? I'd like to defer to Brian. You know, they always say to do these things in three. He said I was a bomb disposal expert. Obviously, that's not an exact science. Uh, so I can certainly say that much about it. Uh, and the general here, he spoke about them stealing stuff from the Army. Uh, the thing that he didn't mention is that, uh, from what I'm told, when Air Force personnel have to go stay on an Army base or a Marine base, they get paid extra because our facilities are so subpar. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lab of luxury that uh, you know, I, we all learn things as a part of our service that I think uh, layer upon Washington, D.C. very well, and I'll just give you three quickly as well. Uh, you know, number one thing uh, that I think I learned, and I think it's very important to point out on the heels of Memorial Day, is that the, the people who served this country that we remember on Memorial Day, they took the exact same oath as what we took uh, as members of Congress, but the way that they did it is quite often different. They never ever gave consideration to any personal gain or, or any personal sacrifices that were going to be incurred as a result of their service. And, and that is absolutely, you know, often a, uh, a difference. Uh, and that's something that I think is very important to remember on the heels of Memorial Day. I think uh, probably the second thing that I learned very well, and this was as a result of being a bomb technician, was that the decisions that each of us as individuals go out there and make, they affect the people that are around us. Uh, as a bomb technician, if I made the wrong decision, that absolutely could mean the life of one of my comrades, one of my brothers in arms that was to my left and right. And so too, the, the legislation that we work on affects real people's lives in the same way. It affects the opportunity for their children to have higher education, or it affects the money that comes out of our wallet, it affects the defense of our nation, it affects our ability to go out there and find gainful employment, it affects real people's lives, and we have to remember it in the, the exact same way. And I would say probably the most important thing that I learned uh, that I think I could layer upon uh, Congress as a result of being in the military, and it came from great leaders like these two. Uh, you know, they, they served at a different level than what I did. And the one thing that I can say about the way that they led is that they never asked something of, of their soldiers or their, their Marines or their airmen that they wouldn't ask of themselves. That has to be the pinnacle trait of good leadership. You never ask something of your men, your women, your whoever, that you wouldn't ask for yourself or your family or anybody else. And uh, if we can keep that as the tenor of Washington, D.C., then I think we'll find ourselves in a good place. So. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to come here and give you all a few words. Good morning, everybody, and I want to thank the Ripon Society for uh, your support and giving us a chance. I enjoyed uh, breakfast earlier this year. I look forward to uh, many more. I want to thank the ambassador for being here. I served with the Australians. Uh, well, my main one was in 2003. Uh, I was at a base in Qatar during the invasion of Iraq, and half of our base were Australians, so we were flying over. Uh, doing the missions, uh, supporting the Army and Marines as they pushed up north. And I love serving with the Australians. They were uh, outstanding. One of my memories was they would get the 
locations of surface air missile sites a day after we would. And so I thought, I went to the base commander, said, so we ought to just give them our stuff. They're getting it the next day. There was always that worry about classified data, but that's what we did. And then years later, I had they did, there was an investigation. I got asked on a lie detector test, have you ever given secrets to a foreign country? I go, yes. Stop the lie detector test. What the hell are you doing? I go, well, I, I gave them to the Australians a day early, and I'm proud of it. So, but it, it all worked out. <laughs> so, uh, um, but anyway, and I also want to uh, thank the general here. You know, the F-105s, if you didn't know, uh, they were, they're fast, they're beautiful aircraft, uh, but they paid a heavy toll in, in Vietnam. I think, I'm going by memory, over 400 were shot down, I believe, over Vietnam. And uh, the 105s is beautiful, but it, it wasn't resilient. But to, to, you know, taking a little shrapnel, the hydraulics would come out, and we lost a lot over North Vietnam. So I appreciate it. Plus, I was, I was at 12th Air Force. I was the 12th Air Force's executive officer back in the day. So I love 12th Air Force, too. So a couple of things that at Memorial Day that bring, I'm going to give three Memorial Day speeches, so like everybody else here. And what I'm going to talk about is 1.2 million people gave their lives uh, in the line of duty. And everyone has a special story. So I always choke up a little bit uh, when I talk about it. But I had to go to 10 people's homes, talk about the loss of their husband or son, in my case. There was always a, a male, you know, a loss. You know, each one is special. You could lose that with 1.2 million. That's a big number. And I think I did a 12 funerals at Arlington, where I was the flag bearer. When you see that family hold that flag, you know it was special. Uh, each one of those people. So, hopefully, I'll do a better job tomorrow or during the weekend on speeches. <laughs> so, um, and what did I learn in the Air Force about leadership? I served for 15 lieutenant colonels, five colonels. Or, excuse me, 20 lieutenant colonels before I became one, five colonels, and 15 generals. And I wish I could say they were all superstar <clears throat> leaders. They were, some were great. I love Joe Breedlove, Joe Gorn, Joe Hobbins. Finest people, I, I love working with them. It's like I love working with these two gentlemen here. I worked with some that weren't so good either, though, I have to confess. So here's a real quick rundown of what I thought good leadership was after studying it all, and really trying to be the best leader I could be. I think leaders have to have a noble vision. If you're in an organization without a noble vision, you feel lost. And so I think as a candidate, I wanted a noble vision. Now as a congressman, I want a noble vision. And for me, it's about protecting freedoms. It's about making sure our national security is strong and that we want to have equal opportunity or uh, good opportunity for the next generation economically. Uh, so that's sort of my vision. I think good leaders are selfless. It's always about the team and the mission. And if it ever becomes about us, we're a poor leader then. I think good leaders have to have moral courage to make tough decisions and be unpopular. There's some things that's all right to be the only guy out there believing it if it's right. And I think some leaders are more in a poll reading uh, and see which way the wind's blowing. I would say it's better to carry a moral compass than a wind vane. Uh, you're going get, to get to the right place if you've got a compass versus the wind vane over time. Uh, I believe uh, good leaders have to strike for excellence. I've worked with too many people who are happy with the B. And if you're happy with the B, you're in the wrong, you're not the right person in that job. Those were my four that I held on to, or that was the main ones I held on to until I became a colonel. And then I sort of realized I needed a couple more because uh, I saw some separators out there. Uh, another one is resilience, so I've added that. Uh, you can't be a good leader if you, don't, if you can't take a punch and get back up, up off the ground. My favorite leaders were knocked down on their butts and had to get back up. Abraham Lincoln, 
loses that Senate race in 1858, and that made him a good candidate in 1860. And I could go up and down all my favorite leaders the same way. I mean, Gerald Grant was kicked out of the army because he was drinking too much. But man, he, he, he was a humble person. And I, I up and down line, Winston Churchill, the man was in the wilderness years for eight years in England because he knew the Nazis were a threat. And yet he, you know, that made him the leader he was when he took over after Poland and, and France. So, and then there's one more, uh, mentoring. I really think the best leaders have to mentor the folks behind them and prepare the next generation. And I found most leaders, if they're focused on the mission and training others, they're good leadership. So that's my, my lessons on leadership. And someday when I'm retired out of this job, I hope to do more in that area because that, that stuff gets me excited. So thank you. Well, hopefully we'll have some time now for Q&A. General Running, you did such a great job with your introductions. I will give you the either the first question or the last question. I'll be the last. I've heard quite enough from you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Okay. Anyone else? Well, I have one for the three of you to kind of get things started. If you were in your last term as a member of Congress, and knowing what you know about the armed services, the uh, and, and how we take care of our veterans. If there was one thing that you could do to really improve the whole situation, whether it be on health care, on recruitment, on what, what would that be before you leave? Sure. Uh, I mean, I'll take this as a being opportunistic. Um, you know, there's one, of the, one thing that I've been working on that I've picked some of these guys on. Uh, I think we as service members are different in, not from everybody, but certainly in the way that we are trained to have a certain commitment, a certain sense of duty to America above everything else. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, these values that are ingrained in us like respect and selfless service and, and honor and, and, and integrity and, and courage. These are things that we try to make more than words. Uh, so. One of the things that I know touches all three of us deeply is the loss of our fellow service members by your own hand. Uh, it's tragic every single time it happens. Um, I've been pinging these guys off of uh, something that uh, my staff and I have been labeling an oath of exit, you know, where if we acknowledge we're different people, that if we say as service members, if I ask the general here, if you say you'll do something, will you do it? No matter how much he doesn't like it, if he says he'll do it, he'll do it. We're different in that way. Um, that maybe we should have some sort of commitment for our service members and oath as they're exiting the military, uh, acknowledging that they will continue to be a defender of our nation and our values and everything that they came up representing, uh, but also that they uh, will reach out to their brothers before ever doing any harm to themselves, that they will continue to be their brother's keeper. Uh, that'd be one thing that if I could get done before my time here, uh, there's not a good way to address that issue because you can't make somebody you can't make somebody not harm themselves but if we acknowledge that we're different people and we make an oath to ourselves and our brothers and our nation i think we are more likely to uphold that so that's one thing that i'd say i think two things i think we our nation has a history prior to 1990 we'll say of saying people in combat within within from a nation that wasn't prepared and people lose their lives when that happens. 
And I think since 1990, we had a, the best military, no doubt about it. We were well-trained, had the best equipment. But if you go backwards, uh, even in Vietnam, we were focused on nuclear war. So we didn't have the, we, were, we weren't thinking about conventional operations. But World War II, we weren't prepared. Korea, we were surprised. Uh, we were, you know, so, so we, we want to make sure we don't put our men and women in uniform in that situation. And as I look at the budget right now, if you look at the air domain and the sea domain, uh, we have the best weapon capabilities superior weapon capabilities, what's called overmatch capabilities, coming down the pike against our adversaries. I think you could say the same, with a little lesser confidence with space and the cyber domains. What worries me in the ground domain, the weapon systems that the Army primarily, a little bit with the Marines they're looking at, are not providing overmatch against what the Russians and the Chinese are producing. That concerns me. Uh, I don't think we should put our soldiers and Marines in harm's way. And if, we got, if, we, if we're not producing tanks that have the, a superior range, or rate of fire and what the uh, enemy's producing, there's something wrong. And so that's gonna, I'm gonna be picking at that sword in the Armed Services Committee because I think we gotta fix it. I think the other area is, we, we keep cutting the size of the military, we're, now we're gonna increase a little bit, but the workload of state hasn't been cut with it. And so I've been to multiple retirements where folks have had 25 deployments. Granted, they weren't your depl long deployments, like our Army uh, brothers and Marines have been doing. They were shorter, some of them had some of those 25 were a year long though. I, just, what I, I think we're wearing our people down, and it's hard to do it to your equipment and your people. Uh, when you do, deploy for 25 years, you know we got we got to either rethink our strategy or we got to expand the, the amount of shoulders that are carrying that burden. In my mind, number one, I don't plan to wait till my last turn. <laughs> uh, I believe it's time for us to have a national conversation whatever that might mean in, in the context of 21st century about what it means for to be a citizen of our country. And that doesn't mean the draft, because that's what people always think about. I believe it's time to have a conversation about national service, whether it's the health service, the forest service, the whatever service that you want at the age of 18, between 18 and 24, that you owe you repeat that. You owe your country something. And why I believe that is important is multifold. But my wife and I have eight grandchildren. We are just in the process of finishing our freshman year in high school for the third time. <laughs> our oldest grandsons, one in California and one in Chicago, are finishing their freshman years right now. So we are looking at the world through the, and sometimes the eyes of that soon to be 16 year old. These are great kids. They are great young men and women. And I, they're great young boys and girls at this point. They're not young men and women yet. And we owe it to them to put them in a position where they have a sense of self-worth based on something real. Real that our fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers gave to us because they persevered through the Great Depression and World War II. And it goes all the way back to Brian's point, if you feel good about yourself, you're not going to do bad things to yourself. And I believe it is time for us to have that number in national service. Again, not just the military, because there's so much good things that they can do. And then, then, they are going to be more prepared to take that next first step in life for them as adults, whatever they choose to do.
Don Carlson, veterans retired. Um, I was kind of amazed to hear the statistic that there's actually 80 members of Congress who serve in the military. I was on the Hill for a long time. I was part of the Vietnam generation who served. But I've always been somewhat appalled by the fact that a lot of the decisions being made in the Congress about the military were made by people who no who did not have any experience in the military, but little, even more than that, had no one in their families, particularly now, that have served in the military. Do your colleagues reach out to you on the basis of, of what your background is to try and understand what the, the issues are facing military and military families? From my perspective, yes. Uh, I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and um, Chairman Thornberry has reached out to me multiple times, and, it, and it's privately asked me, hey, what's the, what's the attitude out there? What's the spirits out there? What, and so I, I feel like we, we get reached out. People reach out to us quite a bit, on, at least for me, on the floor. I, you know, I, I'll tell you, the Armed Services Committee, we have quite a, big, uh, quite a good number of veterans on it. A lot of the veterans have gravitated to the Armed Services Committee and, and our Veterans uh, Committee as well. So I would say I, I, I feel that they are doing that. I'm curious if they have the same perspective or not. Um, I'm on Veterans Affairs, and by um, specific reason, I chose Veterans Affairs over House Armed Services because being a Marine, I wanted to be in charge. And if I became just a member of the House Armed Services Committee, I was going to lose my stars when it came to talking to my colleagues, because they would think I was just lobbying them for some defense proposition on the House Armed Services Committee. And they do reach out all the time. I get asked all the time. In fact, one of the, one of the weirdest things that, that I experienced coming here was people say, what do you want us to call you? Congressman General, I said, well, I'm a jack. That, you know, that, <laughs> oh, no. And then when someone, after a couple of weeks, someone says, you know, someday you're going to be a former congressman, but you'll never be a former general. I said, okay. But what that told me is our colleagues are looking for leadership. I don't care. I don't care whether you served as, a, as an E2 or, a, you know, an 09 or whatever it happens to be. Our colleagues who have not served respect. The, those men and women in Congress who have served. So they will reach out, and across the aisle too, not just one party or another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I find uh, across the, the entire uh, conference, both sides of the aisle, that people do a very good job of reaching out, asking for opinion um, on any number of issues. If they think that it's something that fits into your world beyond that, I think this is something that we're going to see an expansion of. Um, I, I do think that number 80 is just, it's a nice number, but it's a tragic number to some degree. You look at it historically speaking, I think the 1970s were the peak. Almost every member of Congress had served World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam at that point. And I don't ever, uh, don't take this the wrong way, I never begrudge anybody for whether they've served in combat or not served in combat. But there are distinctions there, and the number that have served in combat in Congress right now, I think, is in the teens. And so when you think that maybe there's about one member of Congress for each year that we've been in combat, that is a, a very staggering statistic to, to layer on your point. The reason I think that this is going to grow, the number of representatives here, and you can call me on this in a couple of years if you want, we... Uh, the, the largest influx into the military was a result of you know 9/11 in modern history, 
the normal time for a military career is 20 years. That's when you can hit a military retirement. So if folks were coming in at 2021, 20, 22, 23, 24, I think you're going to see all those folks hitting military retirement age by 2022, 2024. And I think you're going to see them want to throw their hat into the political arena and, and play a role in what it is that we're doing here uh, on the policy front. So I think this is something that in the, the near term, uh, you're going to see that number ramp up to where you would like to see it at. I think uh, I remember looking at the numbers, it was 78% in 1977, somewhere there. Now it's 17%. Uh, of course, I, I think it's changed a percent this last cycle, but those are the numbers I heard. <laughs> Scott Salmon. Uh, thanks, Jim. And thank you all for your service, and, and I think also for the, just the leadership and the, the experience you bring to the Congress and to the country. Uh, my question is, is goes to something more fundamental, and, and I know each of you serve on the committee that has a direct relationship with kind of your former service, but my question is, do you think as a country we have articulated and are pursuing the right challenges to national security? And, 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 you know, maybe we're mostly right, directionally right, but are there things that we could be doing that are different or, or better or more effective? Or... Go ahead. I'll make a quick point on this. I think it goes beyond just, obviously, we need to be courageous in the decisions that we make, but policy is to some degree driven by the sentiment that goes around the station. And... Uh, whether that's right or wrong, we need to find uh, our way as a nation to be at peace with who we are, with what our role is as a country. Are we going to be at peace with the fact that there will always be some hegemonic stability that exists throughout the world that's been a historical fact? Are we at peace with the fact that we as Americans are better, the world is better, uh, if that hegemonic stability is the United States of America, not Russia, not China, not Iran, not whoever, and getting to that point will help to drive the, the right policy. But we as a nation have to be at peace and have that ability to scratch the surface to say, somebody's gonna fill the void, somebody's gonna take control. We'd have better, we, we had better make sure that it's going to be us or we're not gonna find our way picking, picking the right battles. So, so that's, that's what I would have to say. So we just went through by eight years where we said we're gonna, everybody knows we need to increase military spending, but we did the sequester to help force some other decisions we all thought it was wrong and stupid, but we still did it. And part of it is we've held military spending hostage up until this year for domestic spending. But everybody knew that we needed to raise military spending, but we still didn't do it. That, that troubles me. Uh, so military spending overall has been cut about 15% prior to this year. Thankfully, now we've, we've, we've turned the ship around a little bit. We added $20 billion, and we're looking at doing some more, um, you know, this with 28, or the 18 bill. Uh, but it's... I. It's disappointing that Congress and the executive branch allow the military to be held hostage for domestic spending, and it hurt our men and women in uniform, and it hurt if people lose their lives over those kind of decisions. So yeah, I get I, I get angry about that. I think it was terrible decisions made the last eight years supporting the military. And I get I think get to Brian's point. If we think we should be the, a deterrent for North Korea, China, we know with the, you know in the South China Sea there, if we think we have a role in Europe because of what's going on in Ukraine and Georgia. If we think we have a role with Iran and its threats to Israel, well, we got to have a military that can deal with all this. And you, but you can't just wish it away with 50% budget cuts and say, well, we can still do it. And I, sometimes there's wishful thinking and strategies tying 
your end state goals with your ways and means to do it. And we weren't doing that this, for the most part this last decade. So we've, we've got to right the ship. After we uh, kicked off combat operations in Iraq in 2003, there was a phrase coined, uh, the military is at war and America is at the wall. Okay. You know what? And that's okay. Because think what it would be like if all of America was at the wall. It would, it would be a pretty intense, probably not even a strong enough word situation. Well, the fact of the matter is, when you talk about forming your military, are we focused on the, on the right things or whatever it is we're trying to do? We have to realize that now that phrase is, the military is, is still at war around the world. At any given time, historically, there's been roughly about 52 little conflicts going on around the world that we have our fingers in some way or the other, okay? So it's not either all or none. But the reality is we're still we're still at war. We still do provide the national defense. But now guess what? Our adversaries have brought it to the malls. They've brought it to the concert halls. They've brought it to everything else. So it goes back to my point about the idea of the, what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States and what are your responsibilities? And I don't care how you get involved, but we need start seriously considering uh, how do we get that message out to those mothers and fathers because I don't blame the kids I blame the parents and I hate to say blame because that's a that's a negative but it's about the parents as they shape the the perspectives of their children I would suggest to you most of the people in this room had parents you didn't have friends I mean, your parents weren't your friends. They were your parents. You had plenty of friends. You didn't want your parents to know who your friends were. <laughs> but, but the point is, uh, we have the responsibility as leaders in the military at all levels to, to take care of those uh, under our command. And the parents have the responsibility to be parents. And so I, I like it. I tie it all together, but it's a realization. And oh, by the way, uh, if you're frustrated with what you hear, there's not, a, there's not a device in this room that doesn't have an off switch. And that applies to your TVs too. And it applies, newspapers are great for starting fires. So the point is, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, just get yourself right with the world, but don't try, to, don't try to do it by being fed through the flat screen. All right, now, unfortunately, it is now 9.15. I promised three schedulers that I'd have you guys I got to change clothes, too. Yeah, yeah. So, General Running, Nels, you get the last question. It'll be short and sweet, but uh, I heard on WTOP yesterday that the legislation dealing with the appeal process is preventing as passed the House of Rams and I'll just admit what that's about, and the other, I think there are four currently, more or less major pieces of legislation. Well, the, legis the, the legislation for the appeals process within the Veterans Affairs, that's yeah. what you're talking about. Um, it's designed to give the, the veteran more than one option in the appeals process, different tracks. You could just go with it as it is, you could uh, um, submit later. And I'm not going to give you a whole lot of deals here, but it basically gives a veteran multiple options uh, to speed up the process. And that's only the first step, because we were talking at our table here about changing the culture of VA. And uh, Secretary Shulkin 
is is committed, and I'm and I'm full support because you can change all the IT, you can change the providers, you can change everything, but if you don't change the culture, you're not going to get the outcomes. And I was hoping that one sponsored, co-sponsoring, and whatnot. Thank you all for.